Okay, guys, we are back to Galatians, excuse me, Romans chapter 13, verse 8. We did the first little um, clause about uh, owe no man anything last week, and we talked about debt. But the text goes on, and um, and I and I want to read you uh, through the end of the paragraph. Uh, so beginning at verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Now, guys, um, uh, this is the kind of text that I could stretch into week after week after week. I mean, we could look at each one of these commandments. You should not commit adultery. We could spend a week on adultery. We could spend a week on murder. We could spend, you know, we could do that. And, and that's where I, I tend to put you absolutely to sleep. So what we're going to do is we're going to cover this little section together. But there's a couple of things in here that are really good, rich insights. One of them you're not going to care one, two, and holler about because it's a, it's kind of a theological debate um, that you know most people really don't really care about. Uh, you know, but for others of you, you, you may. Uh, it has to do with dispensationalism, which I'll, I'll write up there in a minute if you've never heard of dispensationalism. But the other, ha- the other thing that's in the text, I think, it's very very applicable and and very um, I, I hope stimulating to you. But first of all, let's kind of clear away the the the, uh, the the deck on this the things that are just kind of surfacey on the text. Um, what Paul is suggesting in verse eight is that there is one debt that you will never pay. Um, there will never be a time that you will be out of debt, and that debt is is love. It is a permanent obligation. Uh, don't owe anybody anything except. To love. We can never say, okay, well, I, I, I've done all the loving that I'm ever gonna do. Um, no, no more love out of me. Uh, you know, I've, I've done enough of that loving stuff. Um, but, uh, he goes on to say that to love is to, is to perform all Christian duties. And we're gonna, we're gonna take a look at that in a minute. Because that's what he says as he closes when he says, um, uh, and the one who loves another, uh, who, who loves another has fulfilled the law. We'll talk about that. Now, really, Paul has said this before. Um, he said it in chapter nine, in uh, verse, excuse me, chapter twelve, verse nine. Let love be genuine and abhor what is evil. Love one another with brotherly affection. He's already said that, but here he seems to broaden the audience and says that love. Uh, he brought. Let, let me show you what I mean. The bottom in verse ten, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Uh, he seems to broaden the audience from, uh, in chapter 12, he's talking about loving one another, the other brothers, but here, he uses that term neighbor, which should ring a bell for us. Um, that term neighbor should take you immediately to Luke chapter 10, which is the parable of the Good Samaritan. When the, um, when Jesus is talking about, uh, love and, and somebody in the audience says, uh, who is my neighbor? And, of course, Jesus responds with the most famous parable in all of the Bible, perhaps the most famous section in all the Bible, uh, the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, in, in an effort to answer the question, who is my neighbor, Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. 
That parable, ladies and gentlemen, is designed to help answer that question, what is a neighbor? And and that's the same definition that you've got to plug in here in verse 9. What is a neighbor? A neighbor is somebody that you find that is needy, that is in need. But he also says something here that is um, is theologically, uh, uh, I don't know, dangerous. <laughs> For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Before I get to that, by his use of the neighbor, I, I have suggested that that um, he's taking that term out of the the parable of Good Samaritan. But interestingly, there's another similarity between Paul and what Jesus has said uh, in that they both, they both in this little section, well, in this section, Jesus, I mean, they both quote Leviticus 19, verse 18. Paul quotes Leviticus 19 in verse 9, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus quotes that, of course, in Luke chapter 10, verse 27, in the, in the context of the, of the Good Samaritan. Jesus then concludes, there in Luke 10, where the Good Samaritan is being told, he concludes his discussion on love by saying, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments, um, that you shall love the Lord your God and that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Just like you find Paul saying here. Um, now, the, the only point I'm making is this, guys. Paul, when he writes this, probably is thinking of things that he has heard that Jesus taught. He didn't hear them himself, very likely, but he is alluding to things that he knows that Jesus has already taught. The language is too strikingly similar for that not to be the case. Now, go with me to the end of verse 8 where he says, um, the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Now, guys, that's where a controversy arises, a controversy um, uh, and that you may never have heard of, um, known as dispensationalism. Uh, dispensationalism. Um, I've mentioned this word in here before, but one of the things that dispensationalism does is divide redemptive history up into seven sections. That is, all of redemptive history gets divided up into seven periods or dispensations. Uh, I forget how they go. I think there's, um, I think there's the Adamic and then the Noahic and the Mosaic and then the Davidic and then the, uh, prophetic and, and, and anyway. The last one is the kingdom age. And the one that we're in now is the church age, according to dispensationalism. Um, there's seven dispensations. I mean, you got the, this one, this one, this one, this one, this one, this one. And, but today, we are in what's called the church age. And then the only one that's remaining is what the, the kingdom age. That's the one that's going to come when Jesus comes about again. But here's the important part, guys. In terms of us living in the church age, dispensationalism has found a great abhorrence over law. Because law is found back here in the Mosaic dispensation. And so dispensationalism would often say that law, or the Ten Commandments, let's put it like that, the Ten Commandments has no it has no binding on a church-age Christian. 
And they would appeal to texts like this. The one that is the, is the most, the one that they love to appeal to is in Galatians chapter 5, verse 14 that says, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So what the dispensationalist says is, there need be no law, only love. It's the law of love. And by his so doing, deprecates or depreciates or undervalues or devalues the law. That's one of the products of dispensationalism. That the law is undercut. Now, I, I will say this, that the dispensationalist um, supports the law. <laughs> this might sound confusing. Because he finds the law in the New Testament. At least he finds nine of them. Nine of the Ten Commandments. <clears throat> Which one is not found in the, in the New Testament? You know that. The Sabbath. That's the one that's not found in the, in the, um, in the church age. So it's completely, you know, non-binding. But they would say that nine of the Ten Commandments are binding, but not because they are binding at Sinai. But because nine of those Ten Commandments worked their way into the New Testament. And so the Ten Commandments, not to mention the entire Old Testament, is devalued by dispensationalism. Now, this is the theological discussion that I bet most of you don't give two hoots and a holler about. But it is brought up in this text, ladies and gentlemen. And I want you to see it. I, I, I want you to see, in, at least in my humble opinion, a complete refutation of what I just presented up here. It's right here in Romans 13. <clears throat> Notice what Paul does. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law, the commandments. And then he goes on to list four commandments. Adultery, murder, stealing, and coveting, uh, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Guys, do you see what Paul does? Paul sees absolutely no incompatibility between love and law. To illustrate his point of verse 8, where he says, um, one who loves and is fulfilled, uh, has fulfilled the law. To illustrate that point, he lists for you ten, excuse me, four of the Ten Commandments. As if to say, if there were perfect love, there would be perfect obedience to the law. And if there were perfect obedience to the law, there would be perfect love. What does love look like? You want it? Here it is. Love doesn't commit adultery. Um, love um, doesn't harm others. 
either with a gun or with their tongues. I mean, um, um, you know, by the way, you, you, you do know that it was Jesus that expanded the whole definition of murder, don't you? In, uh, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, he says, uh, uh, you have heard it said that, that uh, you shall not commit murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgments. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to hell fire. You want to know what love looks like? Love doesn't commit adultery. Love doesn't harm others. Either physically or by the misuse and abuse of one's tongue. Love uh, doesn't take what isn't mine. It doesn't steal. Love doesn't do that. Um, and there's lots of ways to steal. I mean, we can uh, do poor work. We can uh, take our hour lunch break and turn it into an hour and 20 minutes. We can uh, quit early from work. We can sell inferior products. There's a lot of way to steal. But love doesn't do that because love delights in the happiness of its object. Love also is satisfied with what God has provided. It doesn't covet. Love is, is perfectly comfortable with what God has made available to them. Guys, I want you to notice that in this little statement of Paul's, love does not displace nor does it replace law. There is no incompatibility between law and love, which is one of the products of dispensationalism. God's law is God's guidelines as to how to love. Gang. If I say to you, the whole law is summarized in one word, love. Now what? What's the next step, for heaven's sakes? It is as if law fills up the word love with its proper content. You want to know how to love? Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't murder. Don't covet. Remove that. Remove that content. And you've just got this mushy, gooey thing that everybody defines differently. Guys, love is really... Nothing more, nothing less than just following the law. The loving thing to do is the obedient thing to do. And the obedient thing to do is the loving thing to do. So, this radical division between law and love is a very unfortunate piece of confusion put in the minds of God's people. 
If I simply say to you, the law is fulfilled by love, now you go figure that out. God hasn't done that to you. He loves you more than that. But he's given you content, ladies and gentlemen. If you want to love God perfectly, then obey God perfectly. Um, it, you know, I, I, I don't think it missed many of your... Uh, these are all four don'ts, by the way. They're four negatives. Do not commit adultery. Do not covet. Do not steal. Do not murder. Um, but love also is... Is a, is a positive, folks, as you see in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Love serves. Love forgives. Love covers sin. And I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, the reason that church folk don't get along is because don't you blame theology. It is a deficiency to love. That's our problem. We are deficient when it comes to love. I meant to bring it with me and I forgot it, but Jonathan Edwards wrote a whole book on 1 Corinthians 13, and I outlined it one, one summer when I was in seminary. I don't know where that is, but it's called Charity and Its Fruits. And you know that the old word for love was charity, but uh, if you... <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you what. You, don't, you can skip... Exodus 20, you don't need to read the law. Go get Edward's book on love. And you want to see how far we fall short of the standards of God's glory? Just read his exposition of love. Love. We don't even do that. Much less stay away from the negatives. But, guys, love and law, they are... There's no incompatibility between the two. Do one perfectly, and the other is done perfectly as well. Now, that's the theological thing that I think, you know, oh, I don't give a hoot about that stuff. Well, you know, those of us who get paid to keep you out of error, we do get, um, get turned on by that stuff. At least I do. The other thing that's in this text... <laughs> um, is just good stuff, folks, but you need to hear it. And I did, I did a series, I looked it up this afternoon, a series of sermons back in 2004. Let, let me just, just out of curiosity, how many of you have come here since 2004? Oh my goodness, half of you, at least half. Then you've never heard me say some of these things. Um, guys, let me show it to you. <laughs> um, it's in verse 9. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the thing that is... Whole books are written. Um, books that are found in Christian bookstores that go something like this. I mean, it, I, I bet you you've heard this before. You cannot love your neighbor unless you love yourself. Because it says right here, love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus...
commands us to love ourselves. And it, it, it certainly wasn't the point of origin, but it is certainly the Christian version of the whole idea of the insistence upon building self-esteem. Ladies and gentlemen, if I am a voice crying in the wilderness, may it be so. But I am nauseated, nauseated by the efforts on the part of parents thinking, thinking that they're building self-esteem in their children. And they refuse in the interest of not damaging or bruising their little psyches to ever criticize, to ever correct, to ever, you know, good job, Johnny. If I hear that, good job. They take the tray back to the, to the, the, the stack over there. Way to go, Johnny. Good job. Johnny. Oh, you ate your chicken nuggets, did you, John? Good job, Johnny. You ate your chicken nuggets. Good, because we wouldn't want to damage them. And it all gets landed on a text like this. Love your neighbor as yourself. And you know, Jesus commands us that we need to love ourselves. They go on to say, there is a biblical, healthy, demanded self-love. I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, it is eating at the vitals of our soul that you that we bought into that stuff. First of all, I want to show you it in the text. But then, may I forever go on record as saying that the best self-esteem is no self-esteem. The only self-esteem is to be Christ-esteem. Now, you say, well, well you know, well, I, I, I don't understand that, Dr. Young. Because, I mean, right there it says, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. What are you going to do with that, Dr. Young? All right, let's, let's, let's do something with it. Guys, before we take a look at that, I want to show you um, just a couple of places. And you, you probably need to see these. I want you to turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Okay, Paul says, 2 Timothy 3.1, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self. Lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, grateful, ungrateful, unholy. You know, guys, um, if you've ever taken a course in the Greek language, the way that the, the Greek authors sought to emphasize things is by location in the verse. If they, or if they're going to emphasize it, they didn't have a, you know, exclamation point at their disposal, nor, you know, italicized words or, you know, bold print. So the way they emphasize them is they put them in the front or the back. Right up in the front of this line, of this list of things that are going to mark off a godless age is... Uh, hmm, 
lovers of self. Um, now guys, do you think that Paul would say one of the foremost characteristics of a godless age would be lovers of self and Jesus turn right around and tell us to love self? Do you think that would happen? Well, while you're chewing on that, um, I want you to go to Matthew 22 where Jesus says it because that's where I'm told that Jesus commands me to love myself. Matthew chapter 22. I can tell you this, he says, um, and I, you don't need to turn, just, just go to 22. In Matthew 16, verse 25, he says, uh, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That certainly seems to be in line with what Paul just got through saying. But take a look with me at, at this Matthew 22 passage. Matthew 22, we'll start at verse uh, 37. Um, and he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. That is the great and first commandment, and a, and a second is like, uh, like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There it is. And based on that, and you know, you see it uh, repeated, echoed in, in Romans 13, uh, I am told that Jesus commands me to love myself. Um, okay, guys, this ain't, this ain't hard. This is not hard. I mean, anybody in this room can get this. What we find here in Matthew chapter 22 is Jesus is summing up, summing up the commandments. He's, summar, he's summarizing the first tablet and the second tablet. I think you know that, don't you, that the Ten Commandments are broken up into two tablets. Um, I mean, physically and, I mean, there's the, uh, the, the, the first five and then the second five. The first five, I, I, I think the parent one is kind of the transition one. The first five had to do with your relationship with God. The, the last five have to do with your relationship to man. Okay? So he's summing up the commandments by saying, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. There's the first tablet summed up. Okay? Then he says, Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the summary of the second tablet. Now, guys. Notice. It's pretty simple. Look at, look at verse 40. On those three commands depend all the law and the prophets. Because you got three there, you see. You gotta love God. You gotta love your neighbor. And you gotta love yourself. Right? No, ladies and gentlemen, if there were a third command that Jesus was giving us, he wouldn't have said two on these two commands. Hang all the law and the prophets. There is no third commandment here. You are sticking a third commandment into the mouth of God when Jesus goes out of your way, out of his way to tell you there are only two there. Love God, love your neighbor. Had he intended to stress a third, particularly when, um, if it was that important, I mean, like we can read in all of the, the psycho babble in Christian bookstores, uh, um, you can't love your neighbor until you love yourself. Ladies and gentlemen, if, if it were that important, 
if it were that necessary, then he would have told us there were three. Um, because that other one is so blasted important. He, he, he could have made it very clear that, you know, um, okay, um, uh, you got to love God, you got to love your neighbor, but to do that, you got to love yourself. He could have been very clear about that. But instead, he was clear in the opposite direction. He was clear by saying there's only two commands. To summarize the entirety of the Ten Commandments, love God and love your neighbor. There's no three component parts in the great commandment. Instead of he goes, instead of that, he goes out of his way to number only two. Guys, if the lack of self-love is the problem that underlies so many of our society's ills, Jesus would have pointed that out. But the point in this passage in Matthew 22, and the point of every other time that it's repeated by Paul in Romans 13 and in uh, Galatians 5, the point is that Jesus implies that we do pretty well when it comes to loving ourselves. And that we are to take that same devotion, that same energy, which is directed towards us, it needs to be taken off of us and directed to our neighbor. No one has to command me to love myself. I do pretty darn good at that with some, with nobody telling me to do it. What Jesus is telling me is to take that which is illegitimate, but already there, and is built in, and I am to direct that. I am to aim that in appropriate self-love onto another object. God and my neighbor. Ladies and gentlemen, nowhere, nowhere does the Bible command us to love, ever command me to love myself. Nowhere. Stop that. And stop teaching your children that mishmash. It nowhere tells me to love myself, but it clearly commands me. To lose myself. You want to do something with yourself? Then lose it. And turn all of my concerns away from myself. And, and public opinion. And do people like me? And am I accepted? And is little Johnny going to have a strong piece of self? Very frankly, ladies and gentlemen, every time I hear that word among Christians, I cringe. Because I don't, I don't, I think it's the last thing that we should be teaching our children. The last thing. Do they have a value? Absolutely they have a value. Do you know where my value comes from? I'm the object of the love of God. 
That's where it came from. I'm valuable whether you recognize it or not because Jesus Christ loves me and gave himself up for me. That's my value. But do you think there's something that's really worth boasting about in the rest of me? And you know me very well. Turn all of that concern about self onto God and onto others and get about the business of dying to self. Doesn't that sound rather New Testament to you? Dying to self? Doesn't it? Yes, it does. You know your New Testament's that well. Very frankly, it's, 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 the, uh, it's the summary of the kingdom ethic. Love God, love your neighbor, and die to self. And if I'm going to love God and love my neighbor, I'm going to have to die to self. Not love myself. That, that is, that's the way Satan tricks us. By inserting one little lie. He'll give you a 999 truths to float one lie. And the one lie is, the greatest thing that I can do for my kids is that I can build their self-esteem. No way. Besides the spiritual things, the greatest thing that you can do for your kids is love your spouse. Love your spouse. Love your wife. Love your husband. Love them. That's what you can do for them. And then tell them and teach them how to serve. Teach them how to give. Teach them how to sacrifice. Teach them how to handle disappointment. But if we keep applauding average, below average, dull behavior, we're just going to fill up our prisons more than they already are. By the way, one of the statistics I remember from that series that I did in 2004. Everybody in prison has a very high self-esteem. Let's quit. <clears throat> Our Father, would you, would you help us think rightly about your word? Forgive us that we have bought into cycle babble. And, um, and have even constructed parenting approaches because, of, because we, we, didn't, we didn't listen, not to Jimmy Young, we didn't listen to your word. And so, Lord, to the degree that Gracie Van is filled with lovers of self, we repent. Might they all... Might we all die to that and move on to um, lose ourselves for the sake of the gospel. We make our prayer, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks and good night.